How are you doing there? Just a little announcement before we kick off. It's a Kilconomics announcement and it is a new event. Tickets are flying out. So have a gander at this event. It is the economics, of course, of the Middle East. Well, of course, the Middle East is once again in dreadful turmoil, a conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, which is engulfing the region in violence unprecedented for 50 years. This panel looks at the underlying economic factors and dynamics that operate in the Middle East and seeks to understand what role they play in this seemingly intractable conflict. How do the oil-rich Arab countries spend their money and why? How has Israel become a global leader in technological innovation? How does trade operate between the countries of the Middle East and other global players? And how does this all influence the geopolitics, not just of the region, but of the entire globe. Hosted by Andrea Catherwood, brilliant journalist and commentator with Carol Nackley, Branko Milanovic, Robert Shrimsley and Nicholas Gruen. That's Saturday at 7pm in the Pembroke. Tickets at kilgonomics.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? I hope you're getting on well in the lashings of rain. John has just arrived in the HQ saying, I will never commute again. Never. Never. Commute, ever. You're not ever. having it. Not having it. You should it's be like just, me, just don't commute. It's the way, I, I, I was trying to get somewhere early this morning and it is just... It, Fucking waste of time. Which is why Ireland has to, Dublin in particular, infrastructure, 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 Absolutely. metros, tubes, yeah. anything that gets helicopters, people. The helicopters, whole helicopters, any, exactly, exactly. I don't care, I'm just not in traffic. Yeah, so, so basically, basically, John's not having it this morning, right? Just so just so you know, he's got a big, lumpy face on him, right? He's not having it, okay? He's, he's upset. I woke up with that familiar, that familiar Irish feel that all you can hear is a wet tire on asphalt. In the morning, yeah, and just outside the main yeah, road, and yeah. I'm just thinking, oh no, it is the winter; it's coming in rapidly. Yeah, and frankly, it's not going to lift until April. So, batten down the hatches. Anyway, apart from all of that, right? You know the way, Mac, that uh, I think I said last week. Every podcast we do, Joyce kind of slips in somewhere or other, and here he is again. <laughs> and here he is again. You Good have, old JJ. <laughs> you have been awarded by the LNH, the Literary and Historical Society of UCD. So this, ladies and gentlemen, is the James Joyce Award and an honorary fellowship of the Society. And what's it for? Well, let me tell you. 
This award is given to those who have made a profound impact in the field of human endeavour and is the highest honour that any student body in Ireland can bestow upon an individual. Now, wow. how about that? How about that? <laughs> the Joyce Award. No, it's a really lovely thing. I'm, it's fantastic, Yeah, Mark. no, That's it's brilliant. a conferral. It's in UCD. It is next Wednesday afternoon at six o'clock in UCD. You're giving a speech? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give a lecture as well. And uh, it's a lovely thing to get. And thank you very much, the Alan H. And... Uh, yeah, I'll give a speech. We're not too sure what it's going to be yet, John. We'll make it up as we go along. Well, hey, what's new there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm just, re- just reading this, and now past recipients of this award include Paul Krugman, who's also a, a Nobel laureate. Yes. John Hume, Desmond yeah. Tutu, Jesse Jackson. I mean, come on. That's pretty illustrious company you're keeping there. Wall over the eyes comes to mind, John. Oh, this is a good line. This is a good line. You know, he's talking about, you know, we did five bucks and Ducky Buck Festival and yada, 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 all that stuff. Then they say, with your incredible podcast, you have been a (laughs) prominent voice in Irish media. It's all down to John Davis. Everything (laughs) I've done is down to John Davis. It's the incredible podcast. (laughs) Well, it's absolutely right. It's, you know, it's it's an, an extra way of communicating economics that we didn't have or I didn't have a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah, it's yeah. all down to you, John. Well, okay. Yes, it is. So, <laughs> so Fantastic, the, man. That's really brilliant. Well done. So to UCD students, if you are around next Wednesday afternoon at six o'clock, Theatre O, I will be accepting this award and I will give a Humbly. speech on contemporary economics with a Joycean flavour. And again, thank you very much to the L and H for this award. Now, John, let us go to more serious, more troubling darker events. We have been spending a lot of time, the whole world has been spending a lot of time thinking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Last week, we decided to do our first part of our history. Yeah. So let's continue, John, with part two of our economic history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, just to give us a little bit of context for what is happening in the Middle East. John, last week we were discussing where we're going from when? Well, Joyce. Joyce, which is a really interesting place to start because we start in 1904, Ulysses, where Leopold Bloom was reading an ad to buy land in Palestine. And this was, as you were saying, the kind of beginnings of the Zionist movement. And a lot of Jews from around the world moving back to, or moving to Palestine. And then from there, we talked briefly about the 1917 the Balfour Declaration, yeah. which then kind of came into force after World War II. But between kind of Balfour and World War II, in 1935, there was a kickback from the Palestinians yeah. of the time. Yeah, no, and I, I, I forgot to say that. So just to clarify a few things, in thirty-five there was a big, almost what you would describe as an intifada, which was the Palestinians who were the dominant race, ethnicity, religion. And between the Palestinians, there were Christians and Muslims, of which the Christians were more dominant. They were slightly more upper class. They were slightly more educated, uh, slightly more intellectual and politically engaged. They, in 35, uh, had a general strike in British Palestine saying, hold on a second, you can't keep Mm. orchestrating. Even though, even though it was Palestinians selling land to Jews, okay, on the open market, on the commercial market, what the Palestinians were saying, like, hold on a second, you cannot continue to plant this land with these outsiders 
because this is our land, this is our country, and we want this country because everyone knew that the British weren't going to be there. It was a British mandate. Like even yeah. even if you think of the words used, they knew at some stage they were going to head off, right? Yeah, from after the First World War. Yeah, they yeah, were, yeah. They were, there, was, there was this idea that the British and French, the French mandate was in Syria and in Lebanon, which is why Lebanese and Syrian people speak French very well. Mm. In fact, the most weird thing about Lebanon is the Lebanese Christians speak this weird hybrid of Arabic and French. That's bizarre. So yeah, 35. And then the other thing, and these characters will re-emerge in this uh, series, which is in 1947, 48, you were asking me what was happening in Israel in the 1950s. Yes. Economically. Yeah. So a massive, massive fact that we forgot to mention last week was that after 1948 and the establishment of the Israeli state and the 47, 48 war and the fact that Palestinians were kicked off their land. There was another ethnic cleansing going on at the time, which was the ethnic cleansing of Jews called Mizrahi Jews, 800,000 of them. Imagine that. Who were they? So they were Jews who lived in... So at the beginning we were talking about Zionism. Zionism was a European idea. But there was another huge community of Jews who lived in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. And they had been there for thousands of years. Thousands of years. I mean, the Jews in Iraq had been there since the 6th century BC. Right. Like the rivers of Babylon. You remember that uh, Boney M song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rivers of Babylon, where we saw Zion. Yeah. That was all about the Jews from there. Fantastic track. But do you know who did the best version of that? I do not, John. I do. Steve Earle did. Cockney Rebel. No. (laughs) Steve Earle was the guy from Copperhead Road, an American folk singer. Absolutely fantastic. My knowledge of obscure football facts is only bested by your knowledge of obscure musical facts, my friend. (laughs) Dig it out. Dig it out. So just so you know, so 800,000 Jews are expelled over a very quick period from Arab countries. Mm. They are called Mizrahi Jews or Oriental Jews, and they get expelled and they end up in Yeah, so people from the East, right? Right, okay. So they end up arriving in Israel in their hundreds of thousands as refugees. So there's two displacements of populations. One is the Palestinians internally, okay, Mm. who are displaced by Israeli Zionist settlers, in effect. Yeah. They get displaced in the Nakba. But at the same time, 800,000 Jews get kicked out of all the Arab countries and they arrive in Israel with nothing. Over what period of time was that? The first big expulsion of Jews is 1948. Yeah. And then gradually, between 1948 and about 1958, they are all... Oh, okay, right. And their their, their property's taken off of them. I mean, it's ridiculous anti-Semitism. Yeah. In cities that there really wasn't that much anti-Semitism before. So the state of Israel poisons relations between Jews and Muslims on many different levels. Mm. We kind of forget that. We kind of think it's just about the Palestinians and just about the land, just about the West Bank or just about the Gaza. No, what it does is, so imagine you're sitting in Marrakesh, right? And Mm. I've actually been in the cemetery, the Jewish cemetery in Marrakesh. It's absolutely huge, right? And you're doing, then you've been there. You're a Moroccan. You've been there for years. You're French speaking, Arabic speaking. You speak Hebrew, but only amongst yourselves, but you're actually a Moroccan. Yeah. And suddenly you are the focus of attention of Moroccan nationalists. And rather than fighting the French, which the Moroccan nationalists had been doing for ages, they start fighting the Jews. And those Jews get kicked out. So they get kicked out of Egypt, yeah. Morocco, Algeria. In fairness, they were kicked out of everywhere. Kicked out of everywhere. So yeah. that's a story that people don't know. And it's an important story as we go on because yeah. they have a different view 
and a different political alignment. They're much more likely to be right-wing than the Zionists who came from Europe, much more likely to be left-wing. And that actually all comes into the mix in the 1980s. Right. And so what we were talking about last week then, when I was asking about the what was going on economically in Palestine, Israel, yeah. at the time, was that it was very much a left-wing government. There was lots of building going on. Yeah. And, you know, with all these influx of people, so there was lots of building and new settlements and all that kind of stuff. And then it reached ahead in 1967 yeah. with the Six-Day War. Yeah. And that's kind of where we stopped. And this is going to be our launch for this yeah. for this one. Now, what I, what I want to say, so if we start in 1967, right, and we're going to go up to 1993-94, which is the Oslo Accord in this part. So okay. 67 to 93. The one big thing I think is important is that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict goes from being seen as quite a secular conflict between the PLO, who were a left-wing nation-building Palestinian organization, against the Israelis, right? Mm. By the time we get to the 90s, you have, on the Israeli side, you have settlers who are being driven by this also messianic idea that God gave them the West Bank. These guys didn't exist in 67, right? Or even in the 70s. And you have Hamas emerges in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and by the time I'm living in Israel, they're setting off suicide bombs. Mm. So you have these totally different sort of impulses. You've also got this bizarre thing. You know the way the left is very pro-Palestinian now? Yeah. Across all of Europe, across all yeah. Europe. In the 1960s, it wasn't. The left was very pro-Israeli. Right? This is a very strange thing. Israel's position in and location in the global mind was very much, people felt very sorry. Israel's brand was a plucky little country of refugees standing up against 40 million enemies all around yeah, yeah. with this very, very brilliant army that could take on everybody. So it was a David and Goliath story and people really bought into it, which yeah. is why so many Irish people ended up in kibbutzes. There was a sense that, Israel, right. yeah, yeah. A sense that Israel was on the right side. This is the interesting thing. Yeah. And the left was ambiguous about Israel and quite pro-Israeli. And that's why the Democrats in, in America were incredibly pro-Israel. Absolutely. More so than the Republicans. Absolutely. So Israel was seen as a democratic country, small, surrounded by enemies. Those mm. enemies were not democratic. They were quite, quite different. There was a real sense that Israel was the guy on the moral right. Yeah. By 1994, that has all changed. So we want to talk about that as well. So yeah. world opinion changes profoundly against Israel, right, during this period, right? So 67, geographically, the Israelis have the West Bank, and it's called the West Bank of the Jordan because it's west of the Jordan, even though it looks east to us. They have Golan Heights, right? They have the Sinai, which is this massive peninsula on the right-hand side of Egypt, if you look at the map. Yeah. Huge, yeah. huge place. They have Gaza, right? They control all this area. The Sinai is particularly strategic because the Suez goes through there as the well. The Suez borders there, right? Yeah. It borders there. And again, the Israelis occupy that whole area, right? So Israel now is in the ascendancy. The PLO are completely and utterly smashed, right? And then they begin to move to Jordan. There is another wave of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon now yeah. and in Jordan. The PLO moved to Jordan. The Jordanians kicked the PLO out. This is another part of the story, right? And of course, so we move into the 1970s, right? And Israel is seen around the world 
as being, again, this plucky little defender of its own democracy against these people who invaded them, right? Mm. So the question we put is, how did Israel go from being regarded as a morally righteous country where the left and the centre-left supported them because of the kibbutzim and the left-wing idea to, by the 1990s, being seen as a colonist settler society? And I can tell you what it struck me when I went to live there, what struck me about how it went this way. But that's part of this 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 20-year story. Okay, so let's start from after the Six-Day War. All this land has been grabbed. Economically, what's going on e- now e- at, the, economically, at the time? E- economically, Israel is a bit of a basket case, right. right? And in the middle of this story, the Israelis change their currency because they have hyperinflation in the 1980s. But economically, what is happening is Israel is a second world country. It is big in textiles, in agriculture. It's got very little manufacturing. Mm. The manufacturing it has is pretty much standard stuff. There's nothing exceptional about it, right? The Palestinians are very much agricultural-based society. So nothing really is happening economically that people would say, wow, this is a fascinating place. That changes again in later years. But what you have is a, a demographic story, right? It's who's living where, who's ruled by whom. And 1972, you have the Munich attacks where Palestinian terrorists kill members of the Israeli Olympic team in Munich. That's right, yeah. So the 70s is the the era of urban guerrillas. It's the era of urban terrorism. See, the IRA, the PLO, etc. And it's that image you have of the PLO with the the PLO scarf. And remember, they're big into hijacking airplanes. That was their thing, right? Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. So it's the 70s, right? And again, what you have is, is the Israelis are still seen as being on the right side. Yeah. Then 73 happens, which is the Yom Kippur War. So the Israelis, Yom Kippur is a Jewish, uh, it's called the Jewish Festival of Atonement around September, October. Mm. And the Israelis are caught napping. And the Egyptians, the Syrians... Again. Again. And the Jordanians, again, have a go, right? So they're invaded. The big Israeli fear is always to be invaded on three sides. From the north, from Lebanon, from the east, from Jordan, and from the south, from Egypt. And at this stage, the Egyptians catch them by surprise... And it is very, very touch and go. It's a very quick war. It's very, very touch and go. For the first four days, the Israelis are completely on the back foot. And then they turn things around again. Massive American aid. Kissinger is very much pro-Israeli. And the Americans come in on the Israeli well, side. he was Jewish. He was Jewish, it? exactly. Yeah. The Americans come in on the Israeli side. And the Israelis, again, defeat the combined Arab forces, yeah. right? So at this stage, we also have... On top of this, the Arabs in general react by yanking up oil prices. So if the 73 war followed by the 1974 embargo on oil, where the OPEC say, we are going to punish the West for siding with Israel. And how we're going to punish the West is we are going to actually reduce our quotas. We're going to drive the price of oil up. Price of oil goes up many fold, maybe three or four times. Mm. And that precipitates a global recession. So the Arabs have, in a way, hit the West in their pocket. Yeah. So what happens after that can't be seen not in the context of this. Yeah. This is a very important weapon, right? And the Saudis at that stage and OPEC realized, actually, we have this big power, coal oil. Coal oil. Exactly. Yeah. But don't forget the other people who have the oil, the Soviets. 
So this is very important for the next part. Mm -hmm. So while the Arabs increase the price of oil, the Arabs gain enormously, but so too do the implacable enemies of the West and supporters of the PLO, Soviet Union. Right. So there's lots of stuff going on at the time. But all the while, life for the average Palestinian is a life in occupation. This is what we can't get away from. So as all this big geopolitics stuff is going on, you're still occupied in Israel. You still are being discriminated against. You still can't travel freely or as freely as you used to do. You still have this bizarre situation where Palestinians are living under military dictatorship while Israelis are living in a democracy in the same land. Yeah, yeah. You also have into the mix, John, from the 70s, the beginning of the settler movement. So the Israeli army look at the West Bank and say, we need a buffer zone because land is crucial to us. If we're going to get attacked from all three sides, we need these buffer zones against our enemies. Mm. That's why they took the Sinai. So therefore, the Egyptian border with Israel goes from the south of Israel to somewhere close to Cairo. Yes. So it's taken for that. They take the Golan Heights for exactly the same idea. They take the West Bank for the same idea. But then they're stuck. They're like, well, we can't occupy this indefinitely. However, into this mix comes these God gave me the land settlers, Mm. largely Americans. Americans, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Largely Americans, extremely religious Americans. And they begin the process of colonizing the West Bank. This is all in the 70s. Mm. So the Palestinians are clearly being threatened all the time. Then 1977 for the Palestinians is a total disaster. Why? Because Egypt who was their main supporter, signs a peace deal called the Camp David Accord between Menachem Begin and Sadat of, of Egypt. This um, is Jimmy Carter's big... Jimmy Carter's, yeah. Do you remember that? Yes, I do, I do. I mean... It, which, grainy photographs. Sort of yeah, 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 yeah. But, but it was also a time when the rest of the world were going, fantastic, exactly. this is great. We're all sorted. Now, let's move on. Exactly. But... Apart but from the Palestinians. If you're sitting in the West Bank, mm. you're not getting anything out of this. You're yeah. not getting anything. So the Palestinians and also the Palestinian refugees, because always on the Palestinian side has been the right to return to the homes that were robbed by the Israelis in 1947-48. Yeah. yeah. But the UN decided, okay, the 1967 borders, that is what's contested, right? So it's the West Bank yeah. and the Gaza and whatever. The Israelis begin, and again, the Israelis start to say, well, hold on a second. You guys in the UN might say this, but if we give away these borders, our enemy is basically right beside us, right? Mm. So this is all going on. Camp David doesn't do anything for Palestinians. That's the key, right? Who drove Camp David? I know Carter kind of facilitated it, but was it an American-driven initiative or was it Israeli or certainly wasn't Arab? They just agreed to it. First first of all, the PLO is fighting a resistance war against the Israelis, right? And... Although the Israelis would never say this, it was quite successful in Israeli public opinion said, look, let's do a deal with these guys. Okay, okay. That's the first thing. Secondly, of course, Egypt needed American aid. So Egypt, the country, Israel was getting huge amounts of American aid. The Americans said, look, we'll pay you too. Yeah. All American deals are usually money deals. Yes. It's always a follow the money, right? If you look at any American deals, there's always... Everything could be solved by money. Uh, Yeah, somebody write a check, right? So Egypt, basically, and of course, for the Americans, this is a huge, huge deal to get the Egyptians on their side. So this is 77. Mm. Then probably the biggest thing happens 
and it's the revolution in Iran. So Iran is not a player. 1979. Exactly. It's not a player at this stage. Iran was on the American side. If we forget, the Shah of Iran was an American stooge, right? Yes. Okay. So Iran was on the American stroke Israeli side. 78, 79, you get the Islamic revolution. Mm. That changes everything. So Iran flips sides, right? And Iran is not a small country. It's a massive country. It flips sides from being pro-American to being absolutely anti-American, from tolerating Israel to being totally, absolutely against Israel. Now, where you see this most is in Lebanon, impact of this. But also what happens is when the Iranian revolution happens, the people who get most spooked by this are the Soviets, right? Because they think, next up, Afghanistan. So the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, prompted by the Iranian revolution, because they do not want an Islamic fundamentalist. On their doorstep. On their doorstep, because there's yeah. a lot of Muslims in Russia. Yeah. Right? And all well, the Well, in stands. the Soviets, yeah, in all the, the stands. stands. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. So this is all going on. And of course, what does the Afghani invasion do? It precipitates the Mujahideen. Yes. And the Mujahideen are largely Sunni Muslims financed by Saudi Arabia, one of which is our friend Osama bin Laden. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you have this radicalization of Islam on the Sunni side, in the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, but on the Shia side too, from the Iranian revolution, because the Iranians are Shia Muslims. Yeah. That changes the world completely, right? And, of course, back to economics, when the Iranian revolution happens, what happens? Get a massive oil spike again. Yeah. So America then goes into a recession in 1980. And who comes out of this? Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Good old Ronnie Reagan. Good old Ronnie and, and, Reagan. And, and, and so did Spitting Image. <laughs> yes, it is. But let's come back to that. Let's have a quick break. Yeah. And we'll come back and we'll talk about Israel, the Palestinians in the 1980s. Right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, 1980, Ronnie Reagan comes in, changes American history and politics 
because Ronnie Reagan was also the, the guy, as we spoke before in a previous podcast about how an awful lot of Irish Democrats in particular flipped over to support You're Ronnie Reagan. Right. And they're called the Reagan Democrats. Yes. And they never left. They never left the Republican Party. Yep. So as you said, the Irish were always a democratic force, massive democratic force. Of course, the peak of all that is the Kennedys, but it's always a democratic party. Yeah. Blue collar Irish, blue collar Italian, and Jews. The yeah. backdrop for exactly. the it's the DNA of the Democratic Party. So it's quite an interesting in the quite an interesting mix in the United States. As you say, Ronnie Reagan comes in and mm. converts lots of blue collar Irish to his message, right? That's the first thing. In America. Second thing, he's an evangelical Christian. Yeah. So he looks to try, he's not an evangelical Christian himself, but he says, this is a gang that I want to court, right? Yeah. This gang is already obsessed with Sumaria and Judea, yeah. which we know is the West Bank, but they know as the biblical lands. So and, they, and they want to bring on the apocalypse. They want to bring on the, the apocalypse. The end of days and all, all that, kind that of sort stuff. of stuff. And they're also very supportive of the Israeli settlers. Yeah. So the American right then cozy up to Israel. This is for the first time ever because the American right would have been waspish and quite anti-Semitic mm. over the years. But now because of the changes in demography and religion and culture and Reagan coming in, they're squarely on the Israeli side. And this kind of emboldens the Israelis, right? Because they realize, look, our brand is changing here, but at least the Americans are with us and this religious stuff helps. But of course, so many Israelis are not religious. So they're completely conflicted. However, all the while, what is happening? The Iranians are coming in. The Iranians are Shia. The Muslim people in Lebanon are also Shia. They just happen to be Shia. Yeah. The vast majority of Muslims are Sunni. Mm. But the Muslim people in Lebanon are Shia. There's also hundreds of thousands of now second-generation Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. The PLO went to Jordan. The Jordanians kicked them out. The PLO then re-emerged and their base is in Lebanon. So Lebanon in the 1970s is the Paris of the Arab world. Yes. It's unbelievably rich. They have the massive, massive offshore banking system. So all Arab money, it's the playground for the Arabs. I mean, I was there last year. You can still see it. Right? Yeah, yeah. it's this, supposed to be gorgeous. The place to go. Yeah. I mean, it still is. You can still see in the architecture and the sort of geography of it on the Mediterranean and the fact that basically Lebanon's full of mountains and these mountains kind of really kind of swoop down to the sea. Yeah. Which they always say about Lebanon, it's the only country you can ski in the morning and actually go to the beach in the afternoon on. Yeah, you can do it in California as well. You probably do it in California too. <laughs> and northern Spain. And loads of places. But anyway, whatever. Anyway, but Lebanon is patchwork of ethnicities run largely by Maronite Christians who are the majority, right? Mm. But it is a patchwork. So you have Druze, so you have Shia, so you have various different Christians. And into this mix, you have the Palestinians coming in as refugees, right? Mm. So it is a multi-ethnic multilingual, multi-religious society. And it's wealthy. Yeah. And it's holding yeah. it together. And the Israelis destroy it, right? Now, because the Palestinians move from Jordan to Beirut. They continue then a low-level war against the Israelis from southern Lebanon, where the Shia Muslims are living, right? Yeah. So it's a combination of Palestinians and Shia Muslims against the Israelis. The Israelis in 1982 say, okay, fuck this, we're going to go out and do, and this is the very interesting thing for what, what's happening now in Gaza, 
we are going to get rid of the PLO by a ground invasion in Israel. So very similar echoes to what we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. On the 6th of June, 82, they invade. They roll into Lebanon. They get bogged down in Lebanon. They end up in the siege of Beirut. The PLO flee to Tripoli. So they succeed in their war aims of getting rid of the PLO out of Lebanon. They don't get rid of the PLO. PLO have just moved base. They're now in Tripoli, right? So, but what do they do in Beirut? The Israelis are supported by the Christian Lebanese. The PLO are supported by the Muslim Lebanese. Syria comes in on the Muslim side. And what you have is an ethnic disaster in Lebanon, which had started in 75. And of course, by 82, the Israelis are involved there. Mm. And they have, you probably heard the Sabran Shatila massacre of Palestinians in a refugee camp in Beirut, massacred by what are called the Phalangists, who were the Christian militia. Phalange was the actual official party of Franco. So in the oh, 1930s, the Christians... Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a bizarre thing. So the Christians so, in Lebanon... So what was Lebanon, driving that then? What? The Christians in Lebanon, under a guy called Jemael, Pierre Jemael, right? They set up a Falange party, which was based on Franco's party. The same basic idea. Right. Of strong state, muscular, a bit like Mussolini, you know? Mm. Lots, and, lots and lots of kind of fascist emblems and strong games and all this sort of things. But at the end, they were called the Falangists, right? And they were a fascist... Christian party in Lebanon, and they were also a militia, and they were part of the greater Christian army that was fighting against the Muslims in, and, in but Lebanon. who was funding them? Interesting now. Uh, the Lebanese expatriate community, Christian expatriate community all around the world, but particularly in France. Okay, wow, so okay. these are the French speakers. Remember I took yeah, the French yeah, speaking Lebanese, yeah, right? Yeah. But they, of course, they were the last Christians in the Middle East. So they felt, and rightly so, that if they lost in Lebanon, all Christians would be wiped out of the Middle East. Yeah. So there's this, again, because of the Iranian Revolution and because of the radicalization of the Sunni, there's this sort of part of the story that wasn't there in the 40s and 50s and 60s, this ethnic stroke religious, we are going to wipe all the Christians out. Jesus. So it's really yeah, mad, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you go to Beirut, you really feel this. Mm. You have this sliver of land from Beirut all the way up to the northern Lebanon, a place called Batroun, in which about two million Christians, the last Christians in the Middle East. Two live. million? Yeah. That's quite sizable. There's a lot of them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they are contracting and contracting and contracting. Right, okay. Right? And they feel this is an existential war for Christianity and they will be wiped off the face of the earth by Muslims, mm. right? So this is like a jihad. And of course, it's not helped because a lot of Muslims are talking jihad now. Prior to this, Muslims were talking Marxism and talking about state building, but there's a substantial minority talking about jihad now. Right. So the Lebanese civil war, which goes on from 1975 to 1990, is made much more vicious by the arrival of the Israelis into Lebanon to get rid of the PLO. Okay. Now, what's happening in Israel at the time? It has 450% inflation per year. The economy is a basket case, right? Uh, how did that come about? Because in order to fight all these wars, the Israelis had to actually print money. So the government, this massive deficit. But I thought money was coming in from, from America. Not, not half enough, not half okay. enough. So what you have is the Israelis create their own military industrial complex, right? So huge parts of the Israeli economy are now, since the 60s, driven by the military, driven by 
making bombs and guns and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Yes, they're buying stuff from the Americans, but they've got their own internal military yeah. system. How do they pay for all this? How do they pay for everything? They don't have the tax base. The economy isn't big enough to fight a war against everybody. It's not big enough to sustain this military. So the central bank just keep printing. Right. And they're printing a currency which was known as the Israeli pound. So they used okay. the pound because of the British mandate. Yeah. And in 1983, after the spectacularly disastrous invasion of Lebanon, the Israelis realise that they can't go on because they've hyperinflation and they change their currency and they so-called the currency the shekel. Yeah. So they basically, did, they do what the Germans did in 19... It's ironically, mm. they adopt the German stabilisation of hyperinflation plan that the Germans adopted in 19... 19- 23, 24. I mean, the echoes are ridiculous. What, what, what's the plan? So what, the plan is, the plan is, so when you've got hyperinflation, yeah. you've got, what's the source of hyperinflation? If the source of hyperinflation is the government continuing to borrow and the central bank legitimizing that borrow by printing money. So the government yeah. basically goes to the central bank and says, here's uh, here's $100 million of IOUs. Crank up that machine yeah, there. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> hey, Mick, Mick, will you turn on the L machine there? So Mick turns on the L money machine and you can hear the... And it prints away, right? Okay, so it's going to Yitzhak, Yakov, turn on the money machine, right? So Yakov is printing all the money, right? And the more money they print, the more the currency falls, right? The more the currency falls, the more imported inflation rises. So you get into this completely downward spiral. Mm. The more they fight wars, the more money they have to print to pay for all the all the guns and all the ammunition and pay for all the soldiers. So they're in this situation, which Ukraine would be in today if it weren't for lots of soft loans from Europe and yeah. the United States, yeah, yeah. which is wars are the most destructive, absolutely the most destructive thing for the economy. So the Israelis are in hyperinflation. And they think, whoa, this can't go on because hyperinflation destroys the the actual society. Mm. So what they do is they say, okay, we're going to change the currency. So let's say 100,000 old pounds is now equal to one shekel. We're going to issue a new currency, number one. We're going to devalue that currency so that we can export our way. And we're going to fix the currency. How are we going to do that? We're going to fix it and the central bank is going to keep it at this rate. But in order to do that, we need a huge amount of foreign reserves so it looks credible. So if, okay. for example, there is a speculative attack on the currency, we can defend it. So they got a massive big IMF loan and a massive loan from the Americans, right? Mm. And they have this, and then, of course, what they do is they say to the army, you cannot continue spending like this. So people say, why did the Israelis pull out of Lebanon? They pulled out because of economics, right? Okay. Because they were actually in a situation where the country was bankrupt. So they pull out of Lebanon they massively reduce the budget deficit. Mm. Of course, they don't cut the army as much, but they cut everything else. And the economy goes into a short recession in the 1980s. And that short recession leads to the Intifada. And this is the fascinating thing, right? So the, all the while the Palestinians are sitting there, right? 40% of the Palestinian labor force is now working in Israel. They're passing through. There's no checkpoints between the West Bank and Israel. Yeah, yeah. Amazing when you think of it now, right? but they're doing the menial jobs, right? So the Israelis said, oh, you know, you want to work the land? Yeah, you work our land. You want to be construction lads, you know, lifting bricks? Yeah, you do that. All jobs Israelis don't want to do are now being done by Palestinians, which is unbelievably humiliating for Palestinians, okay? That's the first thing. Second thing, the Israeli economy goes into massive recession prompted by this complete crackdown on inflation. 
What happens then? You stop building, lots of the manual labor ends up. So you say, well, you know, we don't need you today, you know, Mustafa. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because Mustafa's got no rights. So yeah. think about it. They've no, they've no labor law. They've no the rights. Yeah. So you've got this huge 40% of Palestinians are now working in Israel, traveling over and across the border all the time. They're the first people to get the chop in the 80s recession. That's the first thing. Second thing, only one in eight of Palestinians with a degree get a job in Israel. So what the Israelis do is the minute you become a threat to them, like you have a degree, you're an intellectual, you're mm. a professional, they don't give you jobs. So the Palestinians end up really being the grunt labor for the Israelis. Yeah. This pisses them off completely. Of course it All would, yeah. the while, the settler population expands from about 20,000 to around 80,000. So these settlers, these American settlers with mm. their guns and, and whatever, are taking the Palestinian lands. All the while, the Palestinians are being humiliated. Yeah. And it kicks off, right? 1988, 87, First Intifada, which is the image you have of the Palestinian kids with the slings. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. of course, the Israelis do what the Israelis always do, which is disproportionate use of force yeah. from the IDF. Ironically, it's like a reverse David and Goliath at this Precisely. stage. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, you're absolutely right. So the mo most important point of this is the way in which from the 60s to the 80s, the image of Israel changes profoundly in the West. Changes so much so that now the Israelis are seen as the unambiguous bully. Yeah. They are seen as the yeah. un unambiguous colonizer. Mm. They are seen as a settler race. And the beginning of the Israel is an apartheid state becomes the narrative. Because it is, right? Yes. In any shape or form, yeah. it is, yeah. right? That all the while there are these group called Israeli Arabs that the Israelis call them, which are Arabs who live in Israel. They're not two million. So there's lots of them now. Right, yeah. But they regard themselves, they sometimes say, well, hold on, we're not Israeli Arabs. We're actually Palestinians. So there's all this stuff going on. But what you see is the state that we now know to be Israel is beginning to emerge. And of course, they are losing backing from everybody on the moral idea because they are treating the Palestinians awfully. Then there's one big change there after the Intifada, John, Go which on. is the Intifada sets us on the road to the Oslo Peace Accord. Yeah. Although the Israelis will never say this, Yitzhak Shamir, who is the general who is now the leader, and Arafat realize we've got to do a deal here. This, we, this can't go on. The Israelis will always say we don't react to uprisings, but they did. Yeah. And there's one last piece of the equation we need to be worried about, John, which is the end of the Soviet Union. So the end of the Soviet Union in 89, 90 is a massive boon for Israel. Why? Because 1.4 million Jews who are caught in the Soviet Union emigrate to Israel. 1.4 million. Wow. In a population of six. You think we have a housing crisis with our, with our immigrants here, yeah, yeah. right? Now that does two things, right? It changes the demographic balance which pisses off the PLO and the Palestinians because they realize there are now 1.4 extra Jews, mm. 1.4 million extra Jews. But probably more importantly for the third part of this discussion, John, which we'll go on to, is they're very, very clever. These are the elite of the Soviet Union. The Jews are nuclear physicists. They are doctors. They are engineers. Mm. They are all incredibly well-trained Soviet intellectuals. I know it's a big generalization, but 
I don't think any country has ever got that sort of, as they say in economics, that sort of human capital. Yeah. So they arrive from Russia because they have been suppressed in Russia. They have been discriminated against in Russia, but yet they're incredibly brilliant. And they arrive in Israel. And this is sets the scene for the later tech revolution in Israel. Because Israel was never a tech country. Yeah. But yeah. the Soviets arrive with their education and they've also got education in their DNA. So their kids are mm. extraordinarily clever and brilliant scientists and they go on. But interestingly, everyone expects them, the Soviets to arrive and come with European sensibilities, the sensibilities, let's make peace. They, everyone expects them to join the Labour Party in Israel. Yeah. But they don't. They go really right wing which is one of the big, big misunderstandings. And again, it comes back to, were they more Jewish or more Russian? Right, Do you know okay. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because they they're, they're Russian speakers. So this is, the, this is all in the dynamic, John. This is the okay. early 90s. So let's leave it there for this week. And next week, take up the story from the Not 1990s. 90s. With the influx of Russian Jews, the end of the Soviet Union. The, the end of the Intifada, we're going towards Oslo, yeah. the Oslo Accords in 93. And of course, then in 94, a very important uh, event happens. Yeah. David McWilliams takes up the keys <laughs> of a flat in Ramadan. <laughs> and it all goes to shit. <laughs> I'm working in London and my boss comes in because after the Oslo Accords, yeah. there's peace and everything's okay, great. Yeah. And I, I was working for a big yeah. bank and our boss comes in and says, Anyone want to go to Israel? <laughs> and of course, I just said, well, I go. <laughs> like none of the, yeah. nobody you else put, <laughs> nobody else put up their hands. I said, I'll go. <laughs> and off I went. And this is the start. And I ended up, when we're talking about the Mizrahi Jews, John, yeah. I end up renting from Iraqi Jews, the people who were kicked out of Iraq in 1948, part of that massive big bunch of refugees in a place called Ramat Gan outside of Tel Aviv. Excellent. That's another part of our story. We'll talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.